Yay old man. Welcome to this special edition of Yay, Nay or Meh, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I am your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. And in this special episode, I will be recounting my reviews of the three films I saw under the umbrella of the 2021 BFI London Film Festival. I didn't go to London in person this year for a couple of reasons. Firstly, in the wake of the pandemic, there is a lot of options to watch stuff online, and they also do a touring program with certain selected films from the London Film Festival. So there were plenty of London Film Festival screenings over at the Watershed Cinema in Bristol. So I had access to a reasonable amount of films at the London Film Festival, and also I'm not 100% sure I would be welcome at the house of the people I usually stay at in London. I think there was a lot of lashing out during the pandemic over Zoom calls, and yeah, I'm really not sure I stand there. So I stayed here in Bath and had options for both online screenings and screenings at the Watershed Cinema over in Bristol. When planning out festival trips, I always try to get the most value out of what I do and have a plan as to what is going to be the most valuable things to watch, which films are coming out the furthest away possibly even after the Oscar ceremony, which is one of the major considerations with these kinds of festival films. Will I be able to watch it before the Oscar ceremony and include it in my Oscar deliberations? How likely is it that any of these films will be widely available? I mean, a lot of them actually are going to end up on Netflix, it seems. And also, where else might I be able to see it? Because as the programme for the virtual screenings and the Bristol screenings at the London Film Festival were announced, it was only a couple of weeks before the Film Bath Festival programme was released. So I didn't want to book anything at the London Film Festival and go through all the effort and expense of doing it through the London Film Festival if I could have just done it through Film Bath. So I waited for the Film Bath schedule to be released, booked as much as I wanted at the Film Bath Festival, which at time of recording starts tomorrow, actually, although my first screening isn't until this coming Saturday. So I booked as many films as I could using the Film Bath schedule and then went back and booked some virtual tickets and some Bristol tickets for the London Film Festival. And it's always a tricky balancing act because you're never sure what you will 
quote-unquote need to do if I want to include all these films in my Oscar deliberations. So I was very careful and perhaps overly careful about the films I booked through the London Film Festival, which is why I've only ended up booking three. And it was also irritating that by the time I realised that some of these screenings in Bristol, it might have been a good idea to attend, like Apichatpong, we're a Seth Akun's new film, Memoria, and also the new version of Macbeth, which has been directed by Joel Cohen. By the time I realised it would have been a good idea to book those films over in Bristol under the London banner, they'd already basically sold out, so I missed out on those. I was also perhaps overly cautious about actually pulling the trigger on some of the online screenings as well. There was one rather interesting film called Playground from Belgium, which I nearly bought a ticket to because it did look kind of interesting. And after I'd missed my opportunity to actually rent it through the London Film Festival, Belgium did submit it to this forthcoming International Film Oscar. So. That was a little bit annoying. There was also a Bangladeshi film called Rahana, which, yes, Bangladesh did submit to the Oscars, as I strongly suspected they might, but it also looked like a deeply depressing film about the Me Too movement, so I didn't really want to put myself through that unless I absolutely had to, so I missed that. And I also missed the opportunity to have a virtual screening of a documentary called Citizen Ash about Arthur Ash. Now, it is absolutely impossible to predict what documentaries will end up in the mix for the documentary feature Oscar. There's a certain level of randomness to it, but you can have sort of certain flags, and one of the films I did watch is a documentary, but I missed out on Citizen Ash, and now I'm kind of regressing it. I suspect that Citizen Ash might end up being a genuine contender, and I missed it. So that was rather annoying. But at the end of the day, I did settle on three films, which, at time of recording, I don't think any of them have official UK release dates. And all of them have some level of potential for getting nominated at the Oscars. Indeed, I'd be surprised if there are no Oscar nominations coming out of these three films. Firstly, we have the Welsh-language horror film The Feast, or Guleth, to give it its original language title, which I saw as a virtual screening. We have the Danish animated documentary Flea, which is a triple threat and a serious triple threat for three Oscar nominations, an unprecedented three Oscar nominations in the secondary categories at the Oscars. And we also have a German documentary called Mr. Barkman and His Class, which is a very long documentary, but I do think has a not unreasonable chance of guessing in the Oscar mix for reasons I will explain later. But yeah, those are the three films I did see under the umbrella of the London Film Festival. The Feast, Flea, and Mr. Barkman and His Class. And since that's all I'm going to be talking about in this episode, I'm not going to use any of my usual 
interstitials and bumpers. So let's just get straight on with the first review, which is Guleth, The Feast. It's the debut feature-length film from director Lee Haven-Jones and is written by his long-term collaborator and producer Roger Williams. Lee Haven-Jones has worked a lot on television. Being Welsh, he has directed a few episodes of Doctor Who. He's also done a lot of police procedurals. He's done all three of the major crime shows based on the novels of Anne Cleves. He's done episodes of Vera, Shetland, and the new miniseries, which at time of recording is being broadcast nightly right now, The Long Call. So he is a long-standing, respected director on television, but he and Roger Williams did want to promote Welsh cinema and Welsh language cinema. And in the Q&A, the virtual Q&A after this screening, they did talk about how it is usually easier to make genre films and get them noticed and accepted in the wider world rather than just straight-out dramas. So that's what Lee Haven-Jones and Roger Williams did. They made, essentially, a horror movie-ish. An eco-horror, maybe? A folk horror, maybe? It's... Yeah, well, I'll, I'll be getting on to that. So, we are in a remote region of rural Wales. As it turns out, this film was shot right in the middle of Wales, just north of the Breckens, in Radnorshire, where a rich family live in a very modern building, all straight lines and concrete and glass. The matriarch of this family is the legendary Welsh actress Nia Roberts. If there's a Welsh language TV show or film, there's a very, very strong chance that Nia Roberts will be in it. But she is the matriarch of this family, and her husband, Julian Lewis Jones, is the local MP and the local bigwig. And they are preparing for a dinner party with their two adult sons, Stefan Senid, who is a problem son who's had drug problems in the past, and Sean Allen Davies, who is a little bit creepy, is taking a sabbatical from his studies to become a doctor, and is currently obsessed with competing in triathlons. So during the course of the day, Nia Roberts and her sulking sons try and set up for this party, and a local girl from the village is coming up to help them. The usual girl is unavailable, so a friend who works at the local pub has agreed to come up and help them. This young woman, Anis Elwi, is a very silent, very taciturn young woman, but she follows her assignments, mostly. She gets on with her job, even though she doesn't talk much. But as the day progresses, and as 
the guests at this dinner party start showing up. A local businessman, Rodri Myler, who is trying to get some somewhat shady dealings through the local MP, his friend, and also the neighbouring farmer's wife, Lisa Palfrey, who Rodri Myler is very curious to get his hands or get access to her land. But the further along the day goes, and eventually the further along this dinner party goes, this young woman, Annis Elwy, who nobody knows and doesn't talk very much, starts behaving in stranger and stranger ways, and more and more disconcerting things start happening. So what have these people allowed into their house? And what will the consequences for them be? In a lot of the publicity, and indeed in this Q&A that Lee Haven Jones and Roger Williams did, they brought up a lot the concept of eco-horror. The idea that nature will fight back. That there is some kind of Welsh mythology going on here there is some kind of fight that is going on between the stark, clean, bright lines of this very modernist house plunked down in a field in the foothills of Wales and this strange girl. I mean, it is one of those situations where this woman, this young woman, walks up to the gate and says, oh, you must be the girl from the pub who's agreed to help us you're a little bit like come in and and start working me do that do that do that and she says nothing it's indeed a good 20 minutes i mean because it it was uh, on a virtual screening i I was able to time it it's 20 minutes before this young woman anis elwi says anything at all she's just brought into the house accepted and put to work and the the class differences are very stark and, and very plain to see. It's the first time that this young woman has ever eaten papaya. One of the jobs she has to do is bring in a food delivery, which is masses of bok choy, which has had to be imported from you know the big city to this remote part of Wales. These affluent, influential people are stamping their message on the landscape. And that is definitely what is going on here. And all the while, Anis Elwi says virtually nothing. Almost all the dialogue that comes out of Anis Elwi's mouth throughout the entire course of the film, the majority of it is lyrics from a particular song. And then this was a Welsh language pop song from the 1960s. I did look it up. It's called Wasia de Du Hun, which I'm probably butchering. <laughs> uh, basically, Watch Yourself is the, the translation of this Welsh language pop song. And when Anis Elwi starts singing it, Naya Roberts instantly reacts to it and says, Oh, my mother used to sing that to me. And that, you know, sparks things in her. And all this creepy stuff is gradually building and gradually building and gradually building. And eventually, it bursts. 
by the end of the film, this does get very, very gory and has some rather disgusting and rather uncomfortable things to say. And to some degree, I think the film makes the argument that whatever happens to this family, they kind of deserve it. They are not respecting the land. They are only concerned with money and prestige and power. They don't care that this used to be a working farm, but now it's got this modern architecture monstrosity plunked down in the middle of it, and it's just a weekend getaway for this city folk and this sitting MP. I mean, the father of the family is very concerned with money and status and having these shady backhanded dealings with this local businessman who is involved in mining or fracking, possibly, I'm not sure exactly which, but he basically wants to dig on the neighbouring farm. And we know that this is probably not going to end well because the opening scene of this film is one of these diggers, a, a driller, who hits something and then mysteriously dies. And very soon after that, we start seeing this young woman, Annis Alwy. So we know that if digging is done, it almost certainly won't end well, but that is what the goal is. This local MP, Junior Lewis-Jones, wants to take backhanders from this businessman, Rodri Myler, and strongly encourage his neighbour, Lisa Palfrey, to also take the money. So he only cares about money and status and power. Naya Roberts is distinctly a social climber. She's a little bit Lady Macbeth, you know, the power behind the throne, but doesn't throw her waist about all that much. But she is very concerned about social climbing and status and power. Stefan Sineth, the son, it gradually becomes more and more clear throughout the course of the film that he has severe substance abuse issues, and that doesn't end for well when he pursues possible chemical escape from this awkward dinner party. And the other son, Sean Alan Davis, he's just creepy. He is, everybody says, oh, he's going to go back to his studies as a, as a doctor eventually. But for now, he's just training for these triathlons. And in one of the early scenes in this cycling bib short situation, they're very clingy, very rubbery. He's a little bit too in to his own body inside these tight cycling clothes. And reading between the lines, there's some pretty disturbing stuff in his past as well. So none of these people are good people. And in the best traditions of horror movies, the punishments they receive wildly outstrip their actual crimes. And it does get rather gory and rather excessive by the end. And having this conflict between the modern world and the natural world, the world of money and the world of the spiritual, is, I think, a recurring theme. We start seeing throughout the course of the film that when Annis Elwey starts walking around this beautiful, white, clean house, when she is excited or upset or, or has a heightened emotional reaction, 
she starts leaving little earthy footprints behind her. Whatever she is, or whatever has inhabited her, or, or you know, what this entity is that looks like Annis Elwey, it is clearly a force of nature. It is clearly something which has come from the land and is trying to reclaim the land. And particularly with this opening scene where a driller or a fracker or something dies under mysterious circumstances after you know, raping the soil or whatever. The message of harmony with nature and nature fighting back is definitely there, but quite honestly, I don't think it's there enough. I think The Feast is an interesting film. I think it's got a not unreasonable chance of being submitted by the United Kingdom to the International Film Oscar competition. To the best of my knowledge, its only other series, rather, would be the documentary I've just watched, I Am Belmire, which was excellent, but maybe not particularly award-baity. And honestly, I don't think Guleth is very award-baity either. It has those themes of ecology, of nature, of nature fighting back, but I don't think they're there strongly enough to make the full point it wants. And in certain places, it's outright clumsy. So I think this is a film which, for the majority of it, is tense and interesting, gets wildly excessive and gory by the end, with some somewhat clumsy symbolism about nature and nature fighting back and spiritualism and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, interesting, but I wouldn't say The Feast is outstanding. I think it's good. I think it's worth watching. I do think it is a British film or a Welsh film worth supporting. So if you don't mind reading subtitles or if you yourself speak Welsh, then I think you could do a lot worse than The Feast. And for me, whenever it does become available, and I believe this does have a distribution deal with Picture House Films, so my guess is at some point it will be available in cinemas, but whenever that is, I think The Feast, or Guleth, is a reasonably interesting, reasonably high meh. Next up is the film I saw at the Watershed Cinema over in Bristol with the London Film Festival touring programme, Flea, which is a Danish animated documentary and therefore has the chance to be an unprecedented triple threat at the Oscars, getting nominated in all those secondary categories because this film has been submitted by Denmark to the international film competition. And I think it's high profile enough that the chances of it getting a nomination or at the very least getting on the long list for nomination are pretty high. It's already won the best feature film at the Annoncy Animation Film Festival, the biggest animation festival in the world. So that's something in its favour. It also won the World Cinema Documentary Prize at the Sundance Film Festival. So it's won prizes at major international film festivals for both animation and documentary, and it's got enough 
festival screenings and enough publicity behind it that I really do think Flea is going to be a strong contender at the secondary categories at the Oscars. It is directed by Jens Per Rasmussen, who has a few documentaries in his past, none of which seem to have gained much distribution or attention outside Denmark. But in this case, he is telling the story of his childhood friend, Amin. Amin is not his real name. For varying reasons, his identity still needs to be masked. So even though he is well established in Danish society, there are aspects which he would need to keep his identity secret. So that's basically probably why Jens Per Rasmussen animated over all these interviews that Amin gave. So Amin is an Afghan man who, in the turmoil of 20th century Afghanistan, had to flee for his life from yet another cataclysmic reversal in the fortunes of Afghanistan. His father, who was a pilot, and honestly, I'm not 100% sure if he's a military pilot or a civilian pilot, but either way, when the communists took over in the late 80s, his father disappeared. So Amin and the rest of his family, I mean, he was basically the youngest of four or five kids. So the kids and their mother had to flee Afghanistan and find a safe place to end up. They spent a lot of time in Russia, and unfortunately that coincided with the fall of the Iron Curtain and anarchy and chaos in early 90s Russia, with no food on the shelves and a very xenophobic attitude to the Russian people. So Various people tried to get people smuggled into wider Europe. There are several attempts at people smuggling into Europe, which fail and are all pretty damn horrific. But eventually, at the age of 15, Amin ends up safely in Denmark, where he meets, going to the same school, Jens Per Rasmussen. I mean, these people have known each other since they were 15. Complicating this scenario of needing to escape an unstable political situation, Amin is also gay, which adds an extra element to his need for security and safety. And it being interviewed by his filmmaker friend for this documentary, addressing where his life is and where he has come from, the traumas and the guilt with which he lives now is palpable to see, I mean, even through the animation. He is educated. He is important enough that he regularly makes trips to the United States in order to give lecture tours. And he is also in a stable, happy, question mark, relationship with a man. This guy is his boyfriend slash fiancé slash question mark. 
they are making active moves, or at least Amin's boyfriend is making active moves in order for them to buy a house together and get married. But Amin, for varying reasons, is a little reluctant to do this. I mean, largely, I think, due to survivor's guilt. I mean, my family, my siblings sacrificed so much for me to get here that, you know, do I deserve to be happy is the subtext for a lot of this. So this is a real-life story of a traumatic, a deeply traumatic childhood and the consequences for the adult Amin in Denmark with a support structure which he doesn't necessarily believe he deserves. And this is a deeply, deeply affecting movie. The matter-of-fact way in which Amin tells his story, always through the filter of the animated sections, I mean, this is entirely animated, with uh, brief interludes here and there from archive footage. You know, this is what Afghanistan in 1988 actually looked like. And there's a very, very telling piece of newsreel footage from a prime minister of Afghanistan, and I honestly can't remember specifically which one, but I think, looking at Wikipedia, it was Mohammed Dawood Khan. The prime minister of Afghanistan in the wake of the US-backed Mujahideen trying to depose him said, hey, if you want another Vietnam, you're welcome which seemed eerily prescient. I mean, I watched this only a week after the latest fall of Afghanistan. So seeing Islamic fighters roll into Kabul and take over brutally in 1989, and having only just seen exactly the same thing happen in 2021, that was... um, Yeah, that was interesting. I mean, Afghanistan is known as the funeral pyre of empires for a reason. The more things change, the more things stay the same. So, yeah, there are these little inserts. You know, here is what Afghanistan looked like in 1988. Here is what rural Denmark looked like in, what, it must have been, what, 1995, something like that. But most of it is animated. I think what happened is that Jens Per Rasmussen filmed his friend and his friend's boyfriend and various other people and then animated what actually happened. I don't think it was rotoscoped. I mean, that might have made some sense if everything was rotoscoped into animation, but I don't think that's happened. I mean, it doesn't look like rotoscopic animation. But either way, these interactions, these interviews are all animated largely to protect the identity of Amin. I mean, being a gay immigrant into Denmark is a problem. The fact that, for understandable reasons, he lied on his asylum application into Denmark, it's probably better if the world at large doesn't know specifically who Amin is. So, animation. But the... Animation style is always there. It's got a naturalism to it, a realism to it. It may as well have been rotoscoped. I can clearly see that 
footage that Jens Per Rasmussen shot on his camcorder or given his rig, and then seeing that translated into animation, it's got a naturalism, a realism to it, which is really powerful, particularly when this harrowing story of this kid's youth or this man's youth is told. It's very, very powerful stuff. And it also allows for the fact that when things are described, which I mean didn't personally see, or when something very, very specifically traumatic happens to Amin. In those two situations, the very natural, very clean-lined, I mean, it's also that Claire Lean thing that Hergé Tintin used to do. Very bold, original animation, but in moments of heightened emotion or in moments that Amin didn't witness personally, it gets a much more abstract, much more sketchy look to it. It's almost like a charcoal drawing which is being moved. It actually kind of reminds me of the phenomenal Ghibli animated film, The Tale of the Princess Kaguya, directed by the late lamented Isao Takahata. That too, occasionally in moments of action, also went into charcoal sketch mode. And that's what happens in Flea. It adds a layer of intensity to this situation. It adds a layer of drama to it. I mean, this is a harrowing, a tense, a dramatic film. And the troubles that you need to go through in order to survive, in order to try and get to safety. I mean, this family spends a long time in Russia. And as I said, this is the early 90s, so it's a Russia in chaos where immigrants aren't necessarily welcome, immigrants aren't necessarily supposed to be part of society. So how do you get money? How do you survive? Basically, you bribe the police. The police just stop you on the street saying, right, oh yes, I can arrest you or you can give me your money. And this happens so frequently that it's just a part of life. And there's one deeply, deeply troubling sequence where one day Amin is on the streets of Moscow and he is picked up and put in the back of the van. And in the back of this van is another immigrant girl, who he doesn't personally know, but she's been rounded up at the same time. So Amin and his brother have what little money they have, and you know the police are satisfied with that. But they say she doesn't have any money, she can pay in another way. And they close the van door behind them. And that's just the kind of shit that you have to put up with when you are an immigrant. And the story of the first attempt that this family made to get from the Soviet Union or the former Soviet Union, it looks like they set off from Estonia, but they tried to get to Estonia, to Scandinavia, and what they did, what they had to do in order to try and make that trip an ultimately unsuccessful trip, is truly harrowing, truly disturbing. I mean, the traumas that this kid went through, he saw more stuff before the age of 15 than most people see in a lifetime. And this film describes it, it encourages you to empathise with this, and you do. It's an immensely powerful story. And that's quite apart from the fact that he's also got the extra element of being gay. 
Now, when I first heard about this film, I thought it was, oh, he's a gay Afghan, he needed to escape. But essentially, the homosexuality is a little bit incidental to the much wider story of being a refugee and escaping and fleeing for your life to a hopefully better world. But it does add elements to me, this kid, Amin, how do I tell my family? Will my family accept me if they know that I'm in love with a man and living with a man? And it's one of those situations that maybe he shouldn't have worried so much. The very, very first scene that we see is Amin preparing to be filmed by his friend Jonas Per Rasmussen. And he flashes back and says, you know, tell me about your childhood. And the very first thing that Amin recounts is him on the streets of Kabul, wearing one of his sister's dresses and dancing with his Walkman to Take On Me by Aha. And I didn't check, and I'm not sure if this was deliberate, but I'm pretty sure that all the soundtrack music for this is by Scandinavian bands. Maybe that was deliberate, but anyway. He's in his sister's dress on the streets of Kabul, dancing to Take On Me. So maybe he shouldn't have worried so much about what his family thought of him. I think they kind of knew. So the added pressure of this shameful secret that he has, and he needs to keep hidden from his family, from society at large, anything which makes you stand out, anything which has even the remotest chance of getting you kicked out of Denmark you know, if you, know, you lied or you obfuscated or all those kinds of things. If anything happens, there is a chance that your life will end. So you have to keep it secret. But ultimately, it's a somewhat secondary concern. The traumas and the troubles that... Amin has with his boyfriend slash probable fiance slash moving in together. It's basically the same troubles, the same conflicts he would have had as a heterosexual partner. The crucial thing is that Amin is so traumatized and has such survivor's guilt from all the things his family needed to do in order to get him to this point as a content, educated, important man in Denmark with a stable, loving partner. So many sacrifices needed to be made for him to get to this point. It's a constant question in his mind. Do I deserve this? And I think through the process of Jens Per Rasmussen making this film, and for the first time, I mean directly telling his story. Most of this stuff he hasn't even told his partner. It's kind of like therapy as the making of a film. I think Amin is genuinely helped by talking about this and by revealing this and by Jens Per Rasmussen accepting it and understanding it and being empathetic towards it. I think ultimately, as well as being a film about being a refugee and people trafficking and fleeing from your country for your life, it's also a film about friendship. This is a film about 
a filmmaker who, as a 15-year-old, knew this kid in semi-rural Denmark and was a friend to him and thought he had a story worth telling, told his story, and as a consequence of telling this story, telling his story, the traumas are diminished. It's a therapeutic, a cathartic thing. And hopefully, maybe now, Amin can move on with his life. I think he was genuinely helped by making this film. So, in some ways, this is an uplifting story, even though it's deeply, deeply traumatic at many, many different points throughout the course of the film. It's harrowing, it's heartbreaking, but it does have elements of positivity. I mean, he is in a genuinely good place. And psychologically, he seems to be in a better place than he was at the start. So it works on those levels. It works as an examination of the immigrant's experience. It works as an examination of the shitstorm that Afghanistan is and has always been. I mean, a good example of just how long Afghanistan has been a problem for international empires is in the original Sherlock Holmes stories written by Arthur Conan Doyle. Dr. Watson is a veteran of the Afghan war and has been invalided out of the army from an injury he received in the Afghan war. When they made Sherlock in, what was it, 2015 or so it must have been? Actually, probably earlier than that. But whenever they made Sherlock, Dr. Watson has been invalided out of the army from an injury he received in the Afghan war. And these are two stories over a century apart and exactly the same plot point has happened because nobody has been able to conquer Afghanistan. It's never been done for any length of time. So, yeah, Afghanistan is just such a shitstorm and that's another thing which is examined in this film. So, yeah, this is a film which works on multiple different levels. It's an outstanding documentary. I do think it's an outstanding piece of animation the flipping between the naturalistic style and the more sketchy charcoal style, the judicious use of archive footage of newsreel footage dotted here and there throughout the course of the film. It does work. It does tell this story, and it's a story that needs to be told. And I think Flea is an excellent, excellent film. At time of recording, it doesn't seem to have an official UK release date. But whenever you can see Flea, I do thoroughly recommend it. And for me, it is a yay. The final film I saw as an online screening at the London Film Festival is Mr. Barkman and His Class. This is a documentary directed by Maria Speth, who doesn't have a background in documentary making, but is a reasonably respected narrative feature director. This documentary won an audience award and the Silver Bear at the Berlin Film Festival. And for those reasons, I think there's a not unreasonable chance that Mr. Barkman and his class will be in contention for the documentary feature Oscar. But there are things working against that which will become apparent pretty soon. But this is a documentary, basically a year in the life 
of one particular high school class in one particular town in Germany. Mr. Barkman is a 60-something teacher on the verge of retirement. He is a free-spirited teacher, an eccentric teacher, who's much more likely to pick up on a guitar and sing to his students than actually give him them lessons. He encourages open debate. He encourages empathy in his students. He's much more likely to just let them blow some steam by playing games than actually knuckle down and give some books. He's that kind of comfortable teacher. But his class is in Stadt Allendorf, which is almost in the exact centre of Germany, in the Hesse region of Germany. It's an industrial town, and most of the people work at the local steelworks. And most of the people who work at these steelworks are immigrants. Stadt Allendorf has a history of immigration and dealing with immigration. In the early 20th century, Polish immigrants came to work in the factories. During the Second World War, the Nazis created forced labour camps around Stadt Allendorf, and prisoners of war were forced to work in the industrial machine of Germany. And over recent years, a lot of Turkish and Russian immigrants have come in when the working conditions and wages were not good enough for the native Germans in Stadtallendorf. And this results in the fact that Mr. Barkman's class of between 12 and 14-year-olds, there's basically nobody who has German parents. In his class, there are kids who have either come themselves or their parents have come from Italy, from Turkey, from Bulgaria, from Russia, from Kazakhstan, from Romania. All of these kids have immigrant backgrounds and Mr. Barkman has to try and help them understand each other, help them get along with each other and help them learn from each other. I mean, some of them don't even speak German very well. But this is the life of an industrial town in the centre of Germany in 2020. Or actually, I think this was filmed a few years ago. There's a calendar on the wall at one point which says 2017, so I'm not sure how long Maria Speth was working on this, but basically it is a year in the life of this eccentric, free-spirited teacher and his classroom full of immigrant children. Which is fine, which is interesting. I can understand why an audience, particularly a German audience, would respond to this at the Berlin Film Festival. But this film is three and a half hours long. I was desperately racing against time to try and get this film finished before my rental expired. I should have anticipated this going in because I knew it was three and a half hours long and I was willing to put myself through it because I thought it might well be an awards contender. I should have realised that Maria Speth is deliberately and distinctly being influenced by Frederick Wiseman. Now, Frederick Wiseman is one of those figures who cinephiles know exactly who he is. 
he has made many, many, many documentaries over the years, many highly critically acclaimed documentaries over the years, but he doesn't necessarily make mainstream documentaries. He's never been given a competitive Oscar nomination. He did win an honorary Oscar in 2017 and long deserved and long overdue. But Frederick Wiseman has a very specific style. He tends to just put a camera down in the corner of a room and just observe what happens. And often these are in big, grand places. Some of his most recognisable documentaries are things like Ex Libris, the New York Public Library, where he just sat at cameras in the New York Public Library and saw what happened. He also did City Hall in Jackson Heights, you know, with activists in the poor areas of New York. And Belfast, Maine, observing a fishing community which is dying. But what he does is he just puts a static camera down, doesn't have any voiceover, doesn't have any title cards, doesn't have any chirons, no context whatsoever for what is going on. And he just makes very, very long films in that style. That's what Frederick Wiseman does. And yes, that is a cinephile, a cinematic thing to appreciate. But it's not the kind of thing that you sit down and watch for fun, particularly since most of them are very, very long. And this is clearly what Maria Speth is trying to do with Mr. Backman and his class. We have no context for anything. All the information we have is revealed naturally in dialogue, either in this classroom setting or in conversations with some of his fellow teachers, one or two of which look a little bit set up. I suspect that Maria Speth might have nudged people to say, hey, would you mind talking about this in a, a somewhat conversational way? But regardless, I mean, that kind of goes on in any documentary film. So we only see through context what is going on, what is trying to be said. We don't even see Mr. Barkman for a significant portion of the opening of this film. This film opens in Stadt Allendorf, you know, this town in the middle of Germany. It's pre-dawn. People are getting up, going to work, going to school. And we see a Turkish bakery open up for the morning. And we also see a mosque in the pre-dawn light of this German town. And then we see a girl wearing a headscarf get on the bus and head to school. I mean, so this is clearly Maria Speth setting up the fact that, yes, we're in Germany, but we're in a very immigrant-heavy part of Germany. And then the kids filter into the class, they find their seats, whatever, and it's a static camera, and we see all these kids filter in, and we only hear Mr. Barkman talking to his class. He's saying, Yo, no, you're making too much noise, let's try that again, go out, come back in, be quiet, be respectful, then sit down. And, you know, where's Sophia? She's not here. Why, where is she? So all right, go off and find her. And we only ever hear him. And we're given no context for this. We're given no background to this. And it's very gradually throughout the course of the film that we realise just how diverse 
this class is. I mean, it, as would naturally happen in a lesson about you know, the history of Germany, he asks the questions, right, where are, where are your parents from? And they go around the road, you know, Italy, Morocco, Turkey, Bulgaria, Kazakhstan, Russia, etc., etc., etc. And everybody has these backgrounds. And he tries to encourage people to be empathetic towards each other. I mean, there's a one scene where a tiny little bit of racism enters one little boy's discussion. I mean, he is talking in slightly disparaging terms about a female classmate because she doesn't speak good German. I mean, she's only just moved to Germany from Bulgaria, but he's having a go at her because she doesn't speak very good German. And then it's revealed that his father came from Romania. So, yeah, I think that's a very telling moment in this type of thing. I mean, the kinds of pitfalls that you need to navigate in this kind of environment. And as I said, I mean, more often than not, Mr. Barkman is going to get up to his guitar and sing at his class. And he sings uh, what sounds like an old folk song about two men who love each other. And he asks the class, how do you feel about this? And his at least half Muslim class are very reticent to talk about this. And there's one girl who takes virulently against any discussion of homosexuality. And it's not a girl I would have expected. I mean, this is pretty late in the film, and I actually grew to quite like that particular girl. And then she comes out with this really, really homophobic stuff, and it's like, ooh, yeah, maybe not. So, yeah, there's lots of those types of discussions, and there's lots of discussions about the immigrant experience. I mean, Mr. Barkman himself, his family had to change their name to Barkman because in the build-up to the Second World War, you needed a German name, and his family had been Polish immigrants, or at that time of history, it would have been East Prussian immigrants who had come looking for work in the industrial heartland. So he himself has ancestry not German. And then you had the forced labour camps around Stadtallendorf, some of which are kind of still there, and some of the factories are kind of the same factories that the Nazis set up during the Second World War. I mean, it's no longer inhabited by forced labour, but it's still rather pointed. And then when the working conditions started becoming untenable for the German workforce in the late 70s and early 80s, the owner of this local steelworks just went to Turkey and said, hey, do you want to come and do this poorly paid, dangerous work? And many, many people did. So there's a huge Turkish community in Statalendorf. And now we have a further wave of immigration from places like Bulgaria and Kazakhstan and Morocco because there is work. Yes, at the steelworks, but there's other factories as well. There's other ways that an immigrant can make a life for themselves, can make money. And wave after wave after wave of immigration is basically how Statalendorf is even around nowadays. And that is, I think, the point that Maria Spath is trying to make making this film. There are deliberate and distinct stories about immigration, about 
empathy, about learning to coexist. We occasionally see some of the other teachers which work at this high school, and one of them is a woman of Turkish background, and I think it is also significant that Mr. Barkman is the only Caucasian teacher that we see in this school as well. And this teacher of Turkish background asks a debate question in her class, what does homeland mean? I mean, the German word Heimat, which is, you know, doesn't fully translate into English, but homeland is the closest equivalent we've got. What does Heimat, homeland, mean? And people come up with these, these questions. And a boy says, well, yes, I kind of feel at home in Germany, but I think my real home is probably Turkey, even though I haven't been there for years, but that is probably my real home. And this teacher of Turkish background just bursts into tears. Probably accounted for by the fact that she's actually heavily pregnant, so she's probably got all kinds of hormones running through her. But hearing what this Turkish-German boy thinks of Homeland is making this this teacher burst into tears. And I thought that was a very poignant and pointed moment. And you know, the, the practicalities of this situation. I mean, there's certain situations where arguments are happening within the class. You know, it, it, 12 to 14-year-olds, you're always going to Becky, always going to argue. But you know, something is, is clearly upsetting one of these girls having the argument. And Mr. Barkman tries to work out what's going on. I mean, right, what's going on? What are you saying? Because the argument was happening in Turkish. And he doesn't specifically know what the argument was about. But one of his, his students is clearly upset, is on the verge of tears. So not only does he have to calm her down, he also has to work out and get somebody to translate what the argument was about in the first place. And, and that's what a multicultural classroom ends up being. So, yeah, it, it's, it's a fascinating portrait of an unconventional, free-spirited, eccentric teacher who's seen it all, who's done it all, is on the verge of retirement. This might actually be his last class. There's one line of dialogue which suggests he might be retiring at the end of the year, but again, there's no context for any of this. There's no title cards, there's no chirons, there's no voiceovers. So it's possibly the last class he will ever teach. But he's seen it all, he's done it all. He has these very free-spirited ideas. And encouraging his class to do better. And his class do become better in small ways. Well, they seem to anyway. But this is a three and a half hour German documentary with no context, with no background. It just immerses you, it drowns you in this stuff. And yeah, it's it's interesting in places. It's uplifting, but it does end up being a little bit of a slog. I have to admit. So yeah, you already know probably if you are willing to sit down and watch a three and a half hour documentary in German 
And if you are that kind of person, then Mr. Bachman and his class will be something that you will get something else of that you will find enriching and informative and uplifting. If you are not the type of person who is willing to sit down in front of a three and a half hour German film, then really don't bother. This is not going to change your mind. You know exactly what you're going to get. And I think it basically works. I I think in places, Maria Speth was a little bit too subtle for her own good. Yes, in places it does get rather blunt. It does get rather obvious. There are certain conversations between Mr. Barkman and his colleagues which feel a little bit set up which feel like we are having this conversation because the camera is on us. But even then, I think there are other places where it is too subtle, it is too abstract. Maybe a little bit more directness would have helped with the overall themes and the overall tone of the film. As it is, it is a fascinating examination of multicultural Germany and I suppose by extension, multicultural Europe, because I'm sure if you sat down a camera in a classroom in, I don't know, Hounslow, say, or Selly Oak, if you sat down a camera in an English classroom, you would have somewhat of a similar experience. And I think that's no bad thing. So, yeah, It's an odd mixture of occasionally being too subtle and occasionally being too blunt. It is very, very long. It has zero context. But if you're willing to put up with all of that, I think Mr. Barkman and his class is a rather good film. I doubt it will end up being in the running for any of my personal Oscar considerations, even if it does end up on the 15 film long list. But I still basically recommend it. At time of recording, there doesn't seem to be an official release date for this, but if and when you can see Mr. Barkman and his class, and you know it's the kind of film that you would gravitate towards, I think it's basically a solid meh for Mr. Barkman and his class. So that brings us to the end of this hopefully relatively brief London Film Festival special. I will remind you when these films come out, but I did want to get my reviews out while they're still somewhat fresh in my memory. And who knows when Flea does eventually come out, I might clip out my reviewer and replay it at the time, because I really, really do think Flea is an outstanding and excellent piece of work. And I'm really, really curious to see how many Oscar nominations it actually does end up getting. So Flea is a definite yay. The Feast and Mr. Barkman are both good films, although somewhat flawed. But when they do come out, I think all of them are worth watching. I think I will need to go away now and start working on my July foreplay, already several months late. So all that remains for me to say is this has been a special episode of Yay, Nay or Mare, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I've been your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. Email is rawfootagepodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet me at rawfootagepod and I will see you next time where I shine a light on cinema, both obvious and obscure.